Welcome back to Big Feels at Work, the show where mental health and addictions workers talk about what it's like to work in this space and have big feelings of your own. Bit of a different episode this week because, well, there's no guest. It's just me. Why are you hearing only my dulcet tones this week? Because the topic I want to talk about in this episode is a delicate one. In fact, it's so delicate, I'm not even sure quite yet how to have this conversation live with another person. How's that for a teaser? The topic of this episode is, does my lived experience count? A bit of backstory. When we first started the Big Feels at Work podcast, it was an offshoot of the peer support initiative I run, the Big Feels Club. So by that point, we'd been running the Big Feels Club for a couple of years, and I'd noticed a funny thing. When we asked our club members to tell us a bit about themselves, it turned out that one in four of our club members not only had big feelings of their own, but also worked in mental health. Now, some of them were peer workers, people in designated lived experience roles, but a whole lot of them weren't. They were psychologists, they were nurses, they were GPs. They'd been working for years in mental health or addictions and dealing with their own stuff at the same time. I found this fascinating because it's so easy to forget that the very same professionals we go to when we need help might actually be dealing with their own big, messy life stuff. So that's why we made Big Feels at Work in the first place. For all those health professionals out there with a foot in both camps, whether you're in a designated lived experience role or not, because it can be a lonely road. So fast forward three years, and here in Victoria, we've had this seismic shift in our mental health sector with the findings of the Royal Commission into Mental Health. And that seismic shift is still very much unfolding, right? One of their key findings is that something that many of us have been banging on about for decades, which is we need more people with lived experience working in this system. We need more people who get it because they've lived it. Delivering services, designing services, making the big decisions. And I couldn't be happier about this shift, clearly. But it does leave me with a a big question. What about all those people already working in the system? People who've been doing those hard yards for years in clinical roles, in management roles, often hiding their own big messy stuff because there's no room for it in their workplace. I imagine, and okay, I know this because I hear it from people directly, that some of you might reasonably be wondering, what about my lived experience? Does it count in this new paradigm? And where does it fit? So when I first tried to make this episode, I had a chat with Gareth Edwards, my regular Big Feels at Work co-host, about this very topic. And originally, this episode you're listening to was meant to be the usual chat between the two of us. But we didn't get that far, for reasons I'll explain shortly. Still, here is just a short little snippet of my conversation with Gareth on this question of, does my lived experience count? So the question, if you're not in a designated role, A question you might reasonably be sitting with is, where do I fit in this new system? Does my lived experience count? Yes. (laughs) Done. (laughs) Episode over. We'll go home. Can I jump in? Please. I think you you kind of got to the heart of why the answer is always yes. Because the question isn't, does it count? It's like, where does it fit? Hmm everybody's got lived experience. There is nobody who is untouched by the things we call mental illness or mental disorder. 
So it isn't, does it count? It's like, where does it fit? Yeah. So Gareth and I had a big old chat about that. We talked about how this is something I, I've been quoting from Gareth for years that he told me years ago, which is, yes, we all have lived experience. And that's something you hear more and more now. And <laughs> some of us have been treated really badly because of that lived experience, whether that's in care or discrimination in society. So yes, it's a shared experience in some sense, and there's still this part of it that isn't exactly shared. It was an interesting conversation. But not long after that snippet I played you, we started to get into some spicier questions that I definitely did not feel I could really speak to confidently. Questions like, who gets to speak on behalf of the wider group when it comes to lived experience? What happens when there are several lived experience views on one topic and they contradict each other? For instance, there are some people who want compulsory treatment outlawed and have really good reasons for arguing that. And there are others who say just as passionately, compulsory treatment helped save my life. So what do we do with that? Or another big question, how do we make sure our lived experience advocates represent the people doing it the toughest? Especially as we have more and more better paid roles for people with lived experience, which is great. How do we make sure we don't end up with this homogenous group of middle-class advocates who are all very well-intentioned, but also have all kind of had pretty much the same life trajectory compared to someone who might never see that job ad? And another big question we, we got to, what are we even talking about when we talk about lived experience? Do we mean you've had a diagnosis? Do we mean you've been in hospital? Or is that just defining our experiences by the system's own markers? And if so, what other markers have we got? All big questions, right? And there were more. These questions go way beyond the initial question of does my lived experience count if I'm not in a designated role? But you can see how they're all kind of tied up together, these questions. It's impossible to ask, does my lived experience count? Without asking deeper questions, about what do we even mean by lived experience counting? I think these are all really important questions. But as we were recording that episode, at one point, Gareth and I both just looked at each other over the Zoom and went, hmm, we might have bitten off a bit more than we could chew here. So I decided to stop that recording because I felt like I needed to go away and think more about it before diving right in. And I ended up chatting to a couple of other colleagues about this topic, not on mic, and I realized that part of what I'm finding challenging about it is that it feels like a conversation we all need to have together somehow. People in designated roles, people in non-designated roles, because it's delicate stuff and it's important stuff. So this is actually something I'm keen to make happen somehow, some kind of, whether it's a one-off or an ongoing conversations about that topic between more than just me and Gareth. So more on that idea down the track. Keep, keep listening, I'll, I'll let you know. For the rest of this episode, though, there are a few thoughts I would like to share just after my chats on the subject with a few different people recently, specifically around this question of where does my lived experience fit if I'm not in a designated lived experience role. My thoughts here aren't in any way meant to be a final word on this topic. I'm sharing them in the spirit of here are some thoughts I'm having about a topic I'm still buffering on. So please take them in that spirit. 
there are two things I want to cover here. One is the challenge of undisclosed lived experience. And secondly, I want to talk about this recurring question of how will you use your lived experience? So more on that in a tick. Starting with the first one, the challenge of non-designated lived experience. If you're in a non-designated role, chances are your lived experience is not disclosed to some or even all of your colleagues and clients. So way back when we started Big Feels at Work, we did a survey trying to get a sense of what it's like out there for people with a foot in both camps. And one of the questions we asked, so we had 96 people answer this, this first survey. One of the questions was, are you open about your lived experience at work? About 40% of respondents said, yeah, I'm very open about it at work. It's in my role description. Another 40% said, I've told a handful of colleagues, but it's not common knowledge. 5% said, I've told one person. And 10% said, no one knows. So one in 10 of respondents to that survey are out there working in this field with big fields of their own and haven't told anyone. And half of respondents have told a handful of colleagues at most, but it's not common knowledge. This presents a challenge. If you're not talking about your lived experience with other colleagues who get it because they live that dual life too, it makes it harder, I think, to work out where your lived experience fits into your work. Or even just to see how your personal and professional life are interacting because you're so inside it. It's hard to tease it out, I guess. This is why we have peer supervision for people in designated lived experience roles. Someone with lived experience you can go and talk to who's done similar work to you and who you can talk to regularly about how it's all going and tease apart those kind of really quite nuanced and often intense interactions between the personal and the professional. I've been advocating for years to have peer supervision as, a, as an absolute must-have for any lived experience roles. I wonder if we need some way of offering that same sort of a space for people in non-designated roles who have lived experience. The tricky part of this is that it may need to be accessed anonymously, because if no one at work knows, or hardly anyone at work knows, that you've got lived experience, it is kind of hard to go to your manager and say, I need peer supervision. So that's a challenge. If you have any bright ideas about this, please let me know about how we create more spaces for non-designated uh, lived experience workers, psychologists, social workers, and so on, to come together and share a bit of the journey. If you have ideas about how to do that, I would love to hear them. You would have got an email with this episode. If you're on our mailing list, uh, please hit reply and let me know what you're thinking. Otherwise, hello at bigfeels.club. Send me your ideas. Okay, the second of my two things I wanted to touch on. This question of, but how will you use your lived experience? It's funny, because the question of where does my lived experience fit? Not that long ago, we used to apply it to designated lived experience workers. Specifically, peer support workers, right? I noticed this from very early on after I moved to Australia 10 years ago from New Zealand. It was something that really struck me about the way we were talking about peer work in Australia. It was a real focus on telling your story. And all these questions about how do you tell your story? When do you tell your story? 
And this wasn't so much a focus coming from the movement itself in terms of peer workers. It was coming from managers and colleagues. They really wanted to know, yeah, but how are you going to tell your story? How are you going to use your lived experience? And look, we know that skillfully sharing some of your own life experience can be so powerful for the people you're supporting, right? But here's the thing. My experience as a peer worker years ago, starting out in New Zealand, I didn't really tell my story. Certainly not all at once. It would come out in bits organically in conversation with clients or colleagues. But most of what I was doing as a support worker was listening, not speaking. And I do think my lived experience has made me a better listener. But my point is that even in a peer support role, the value of someone's lived experience isn't ever just that they share that experience. I think it's something more like this. If you hire more people with skin in the game, because they've lived it, you're loading the dice for hiring people that get it. People that understand the power of someone just listening and really listening. What this means to me is that if you're in a clinical role or even a management role and you've got undisclosed lived experience, Chances are it's massively shaping the way you work, even if you've never told a soul. It's shaping the questions you ask, and it's shaping how you listen. And in something of a mixed blessing, it's shaping the way you are impacted by the work, I would say. The stuff you dwell on, the stuff you take home with you. I'm not saying you can't care about the work if it's not personal. Of course you can. But it's a different thing when you've lived it. As listeners to the show have told me, it's a different thing to stand in front of a client, for instance, who's in a position you yourself have just recently been in, and to know you don't have the answer for them. You don't have the magic bullet. That can be really hard, for instance. But again, I would say, and this is the key point I wanted to make here, that even the fact that you know you don't have the answer is significant. You might be just that little less quick to rush to a solution that they've heard before or to fix something that doesn't need to be fixed. It needs to be heard. This question of how will you use your lived experience, I'd like to think we've sort of moved on from that a little when it comes to, say, peer support roles. But I wonder if that same question is now being asked of other key roles in the system. For instance, There's a push now to get more lived experience at the executive level. CEOs, board. I can imagine the pushback being, yeah, but if they're not working directly with clients, how are they using their lived experience? I think the truth is with this stuff, maybe we'll only really appreciate the value of lived experience leadership when we see it, when it starts to become more and more of the norm. But the good news is we're not flying blind here because we already have great lived experience executives. Some have been in there for years doing the work with very few people knowing about their lived experience. And again, I know this because I'm often the one people tell, hey, by the way, I actually have this whole history personally. I spoke to a colleague just recently who's managed to get what I think is a major win in terms of shifting their organization's commitment to real lived experience leadership. And I said to them, this is exactly the kind of change that wouldn't have happened if you weren't in that room where the decisions get made. 
even if your colleagues don't know about all of your personal history. And then there are the lived experience executives who we, we do know all about. I think about my experience back in New Zealand when I first started in mental health. I worked for our first and biggest peer-run mental health agency. So everyone from the CEO to the cleaner had lived experience. And I can tell you that place looked nothing like any other mental health service I've ever worked at. We designed the policies and procedures from scratch. The way we trained our workers, everything was done from a place of, hey, what everyone else has been doing for years, it's not working. So if we're doing this, we're going to do it differently. Now, that is not to say that we did everything perfectly. My point is just our leadership really got the need to try new things because they'd lived through the existing system themselves. And I want to finish here with a clip of Heather Pickard, former CEO of Shark, and one of my favorite guests we've had on Big Feels at Work. So years ago, Heather was a client at Shark, the self-help addictions resource center in Melbourne. And eventually, years later, she became their CEO. Now that is a recipe for doing things differently. Here's Heather capturing in one sentence this thing I'm describing about having an appetite to do things differently. How do we say a system's not operating well and then we just top up more money to do the same thing and think we're going to make the service better? Here, here. So CEOs, other executives, board members, these are the people who make it possible for an organization's staff to truly work in new ways. They create the space in which that can be done. If you've lived through the failings of the current mental health and addiction system, you are strongly incentivized to keep pushing us forward and trying genuinely new things. So here's Heather talking a little bit about how this works in practice with regard to how she approaches the important question of risk. And I think you'll hear how this sounds a little bit different to the standard approach. Life is risk mm. and and without... And don't be, you know, for us, we're not frightened of risk, yeah. but we've learned to identify it and to say what we're going to do to, to you know, reduce it mm. immediately puts funders and, uh, you know, government entities at ease because they already know that you've identified what their head's gone 99 miles about, about why to say no. Um, you've already identified why how they can say yes. Yep. And how by, you know, putting these things in place, that's going to mean that the risk remains low. And it's one of the compliance things that's my headache, not yours. My headache, not my staff. So they're doing all this wonderful stuff uh, and part of what I do is manage that stuff. Yes. Um, because if, I, if they have to do it, it'll suffocate them. Heather Pickard there, former CEO of Shark. For more, check out episode 13 of Big Feels at Work, which you can find at bigfeelsatwork.com. So, does your lived experience count, even if you're in a non-designated role? To echo Gareth, yes! Is it always clear exactly how you're drawing on it? Maybe not. But it's there. It's there when we keep quietly pushing for things that others might put in the too-hard basket. And it's definitely there when we feel like there's no way we're ever doing enough and we must be letting people down. In short, 
It's why we do this work, because it so deeply matters to us. And you cannot underestimate the importance of a powerful enough why. Okay, that's about it for this episode. One last thing. I'm curious about how we might start to make Big Feels at Work a little more interactive. I hear from our listeners, I hear these really rich stories about what it's like out there working in this field when you have a foot in both camps. And I keep thinking, how can we make more spaces for you to hear from each other? Or even just see each other and know it's not just you out there. So I've got some ideas for this. A small place to start, perhaps. And I'll be testing that idea with you soon to see who's keen. So keep watching the Big Feels at Work emails. They're the ones that you get sent out with the with the new episodes. If you're not on the Big Feels at Work mailing list yet, if someone just sent you this episode or you listened on our website, go to bigfeelsatwork.com. That's bigfeelsatwork.com. And sign up to be the first to know about new episodes and any other experiments. Cool. Okay, that's all from me. Until next time.